Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from Bin University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome uh, Dr. Nathan Furr, author of The Upside of Uncertainty, A Guide of Finding Possibility in the Unknown. Nathan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, Nathan, I just love this book. I mean, it's one of those books everybody should get this book, especially people who are afraid to take uh, chances. I mean, it's a fabulous book to encourage you to, you know, live life and and don't uh, sell yourself short. So let's start off with what's your, uh, tell us about your professional background and how you ended up in France. Yeah, so um, I I do live in Paris, France. Uh, you probably wouldn't guess it, though, from my uh, thick French accent, and that's because yeah. I'm not I'm not originally from France. I grew up on the west coast of the US. I worked in industry. I got really interested in understanding how things work, particularly innovation. And so I went back and did my PhD at Stanford. I was an academic there for a while. And um, then I got an offer to join a business school in France called INSEAD. Outside of North America, folks tend not to know it, but it is you know, ranked by the Financial Times, usually one of the top five. Uh, programs in the world, and it's really because the focus is 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 global. So, it was an opportunity I couldn't turn down. Uh, plus, it was in France, which is a country I love, and so we've been here since 2015. Congratulations! And you know, I taught 10 years at Wharton, so we know Ensnod for sure. And yeah, it's a great too. school with a great, actually, well-known entrepreneurship program, one of the best in the world. Yeah, so, we had a close what, partnership with Wharton. So you're right. Yeah, yeah. So what made you write this book? So uh, as I mentioned, I study innovation. And I've been interviewing innovators for 20 years. I've gotten to interview some big names uh, like Elon Musk back when he was a more normal human being. And, uh, and uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, Indra Nui, when she was leading Pepsi through their big change. Uh, Robin Chase, when she created Zipcar. So uh, here's the thing. You mentioned people who should maybe take more risks in their life. I might be a little bit of that in that category originally because I could very clearly see in all these interviews with innovators and creators that to do something new, to have an achievement, to have a breakthrough, to create innovation, to create a company, to lead a transformation, it always came with uncertainty. But I felt like I had not really ever been taught how to face uncertainty well. So I just started trying to get tips and tricks for my own self. And then as I went out and looked at the research about this, it was very clear that we didn't have a really solid answer. So I became more systematic. And, and then I did partner up with my co-author, who uh, Susanna Fur on the upside of uncertainty. And uh, she's like the real deal. She's like the innovator, entrepreneur, contrarian. So she like lives it and I study it. It was really the combination of those two, those two voices and, and, uh, and research that came together in that book. 
How, how long have you been married to your co-author? I have been married 27 years, and we have uh, four kids, and they are ages 18, 20, 22, and 25. And I'll tell you, there's been some real uncertainty on that journey, including yeah, writing the book. A, and we have a question on that in, in the book about something uh, that you and your wife went through that's um, any parent, it would be horrifying to go through, but you somehow got through it. And I think your next book is about how to stay married because 27 years, still married, four kids, uh, and nobody's been shot yet. That's a good thing. It, it is a good thing. And I think it's a lesson. So I have multiple domains. One is innovation. One is tech strategy. One is uh, is uncertainty. And in the technology strategy field, we have this concept of complementarity, which is what is it that like other technologies bring or other partners bring you don't have. And I'd say my one point of advice would be, I think what helped us is to say, okay, we don't think the same. So let's look for the complementarity because that's what makes us stronger. Well, I, I, I uh, congratulate you on that. How do you define uncertainty? Well, uncertainty is a really uh, nebulous topic for a lot of people. And let's start first with the definition given by Frank Knight, who was this very famous economist. And he made a differentiation between risk and uncertainty. He said, risk is something where you know the variables involved. You probably have a sense of the probability distribution. You just don't know what value you will get. So, so I like to think of rolling dice. Uh, you know you'll get between 2 and 12. You just don't know which number you'll get. And, and the thing about risk is it, it's actually something we should, it's, it's appropriate for you to try to control that. So when I talk about uncertainty, I'm not talking about risk of somebody getting hurt in a factory in a machine. That's something we're very careful with, we control. Uh, Frank Knight, though, said uncertainty is totally different. Uncertainty is where we don't maybe know the variables involved. We don't know the probability distribution. We don't even maybe have a mental model to make sense of it. So think about how everybody's wrestling with what generative AI means right now. Like that's uncertain. And by contrast, rather than trying to control it or eliminate it, you actually want to say, how do we explore it? How do we understand what's there? Because possibility and uncertainty are really two sides of the same coin. So if we're always running away from the uncertainty, we, we miss out on the possibility there. What were some of the most uncertain things you attempted and what were the results? Oh my gosh. Um, <clears throat> I would say <clears throat> one of them was moving to France. So when we got this offer for this you know, kind of dream job at this top tier institution. Uh, it was tricky because we were very comfortable at a university in the U.S., very good, you know, very nice university. I, I was going to have the job for life that professors work for. Uh, the kids were in school. My oldest was in high school. And, um, you know, we had family living nearby. So I just felt like how in the world could I justify uprooting this family for this thing that I really love. And um, one of the principles we talk in the book about is how do you make decisions and uncertainty? And one of the principles there I learned later, I can explain based on what happened to me, but I was calling around asking for advice. And I called it my grandmother, who is, she was a real contrarian. She really pushed for civil rights back when that wasn't popular. She pushed for mental health services back when that wasn't popular. And I called her and told her my dilemma. And I asked her, what, what should I do? 
how dare I uproot this family that's so comfortable? And she said to me, Nathan, when the way, she said, Nathan, the way that parents teach their children to live their dreams is when the parents live their dreams. And that was such a moment of clarity because I knew instantly what, what I needed to do. Now, later in interviews, you know, we had, for example, we had this great interview with Jeff Bezos about how he made the decision to start Amazon back when the internet was not cool. It was super sketchy. I mean, he was starting it in his garage, painting, you know, amazon.com on in spray paint. I mean, it was nothing. And, uh, he, he and, and he had to leave his bonus on the table. And, and he actually said something very similar to that, except he called it this regret minimization framework, which is project yourself out to age 80 and say, when I'm looking back on my life, what will I regret? And for him it was very clear. I will not regret trying and failing because at least then I tried. He said, the one thing I would regret is never having tried. And and that was, you know, my grandmother's advice essentially was, uh, and, you know, there, I want to admit there are times in life when we're overloaded and everything's too much and, and the right decision is not to make that jump. But I think it's this, we get stuck in these moments because, and I think what, Mark, where we got really stuck in that moment, this is one of the mistakes people make is they have a certain situation and they compare the benefits of the certainty to the risks or the unknowns of the uncertainty, which is a very unfair comparison versus comparing the benefits of the known to the potential benefits of the unknown and the risks of the known to the risks of the uh, unknown. And that, that, then it starts to get you know, easier to make that decision too. Cause you say, well, okay, like the benefits, I'll get the job for life and kids are comfortable, but what are the benefits of the unknown? Well, I'm, I'll be in a more competitive game where I'm learning from strong colleagues and my kids will have to learn how to speak another language and adapt to a culture. And that learning to adapt is valuable too. And so then all of a sudden it gets easier to make. So I, you know, I just point to that one flaw we often make in our decision, comparing the certainties, certain benefits to the uncertain risks. That's always a losing decision-making formula. <clears throat> I always tell my kids and the students that um, there's no downside to trying, that you're only a winner if you go out and try. If you don't try, then you've cheated yourself. I mean, I just ran a, a hackathon, but I changed the whole idea of a hackathon. And the whole senior leadership of the university was really nervous about it. I said, we need to try something that nobody's ever tried before. And, and it, luckily, it worked out great. I mean, the students raved about it. And I think that's what you have to do. You know, how many times have you had friends talk about writing a book or taking the big trip and then they just keep pushing it off and off as opposed to just taking the step forward? If, if I thought about everything I was going to do, I probably wouldn't do half the things I do uh, if you think about it. But if you just put the one foot forward in front of the other, you end up doing things that you never thought you were capable of doing before. But what was it like writing the book with your wife? Well, um, you know, it was really the bringing together practical wisdom and academic research and interviews. And I'll say one thing about it is, you know, so the prior books I'd written were written to like businesses and leaders. And there's a certain amount of formality that happens when you write that way. And what she pointed out, which I think is absolutely true, is to lead through uncertainty, uh, you, you, even if you're a leader you feel uncertainty at a personal level. Like it's, you feel it in your mind, you feel it in your stomach, you feel 
you feel those emotions yourself. So we needed to write to the person inside the leader or the person inside the manager or just to the regular everyday person. Because Mark, you actually put your, your finger on the whole point uh, of the book. Underneath all of it is really a very simple idea. And that is that if uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin, and I, I could spend the rest of our time showing you how it is, but it is. Every possibility, if you think back on your lives, the things you're proud of, the things you accomplished, I guarantee they were preceded by uncertainty. But, but now you look at those achievements and you look at how proud you are of, of those things and those things you did. And Mark, you've done a lot of that. But if we're going to live our best lives, we're going to have to get good at uncertainty. And that's true of people. That's true of leaders. That's true of companies. I mean, how many, co- I was just with the CEO of a, I can't reveal it because you know I have to get clearance with their communications yeah, in advance. A company you would all know, a company you would all know. And he said to me something really from the leader perspective. He said, you know, we all know that investing in counter-cyclical times often leads to the greatest breakthrough growth, but we never do it. No one will do it. And it's because of that uncertainty. And he told me how they did something really you know, everybody was saying, get out of physical retail, and they got into it. And it's been amazing for them. But so I just highlight that's true at the level of businesses, but it's true at, at, at the level of us too, humans, people. You write about uh, Dr. Tina uh, Selig. Am I saying that name correctly? Yeah, Tina Selig. Oh, one of my favorite mentors. And she put together Riskometer, which one outside of the physical, what are the most challenging risks that hold people back from maximizing professional? and life experiences? Oh, that's a great question. So um, so uh, is it okay if I give a little context on where that came from? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, you, I did, as I mentioned, I did my PhD at Stanford in Silicon Valley. And you got to know the heroes in Silicon Valley are not nerdy professors like me. They're the entrepreneurs. They're the doers. And so it's hard to be in that environment and not say like, gosh, maybe I should quit my PhD program and go be an entrepreneur. But I felt really, I was starting to feel really bad about myself because I kept saying, I'm not a risk taker. Now, for context, we had four kids. We were living on student loans. My wife was starting her clothing line. It was not producing any money. So it was just like money was getting eaten up. And I went to lunch with Tina Seelig, who's a professor at Stanford, a mentor of mine. And I was kind of telling her, Tina, ah, if I had any guts, I'd just go start a uh, a startup, but I'm not a risk taker. And she said, what do you mean you're not a risk taker? I said, well, I just can't take the risk. I'm, I'm just too afraid. And she said to me, Nathan, do you really think there's only one kind of risk? And I said, well, explain. And she said, in my mind, there's many kinds of risk, let's say uncertainty for the sake of uh, the proper term, but there's financial risk, there's social risk, there's intellectual risk, there's emotional risk, there's physical, political, you could go on. The point she said is, yeah, so you're living on student loans with four kids and, and you don't have much of a financial risk tolerance right now. I get that. That makes sense. But you seem like somebody who's willing to take an intellectual and a social risk. And what she was teaching me right there was do some self-reflection because where you have strengths, that's where you want to really play to. And where you have weaknesses, it's good to be aware for two reasons. One, you can do things to make yourself more comfortable. but two. Sometimes your risk aversion could be holding you back from the thing that's most important to you. And so the two that I see 
that often get people in trouble. One is actually the emotional risk. I, I don't know, you know where everybody is in the world, but my family loves this show called Downton Abbey. Oh, I love is, Downton Abbey. Okay, okay. Well, I hate it. And this is why I hate it. Oh. Because is every, every episode, the premise is basically this. If so-and-so could just take the emotional risk to say, I love you to so-and-so, then like everything would be great. But instead it becomes like a slow moving train wreck and a disaster. Now, Mark, I'm oversimplifying, right? Yeah. But the, but the point is, I think often where people get hung up in their personal lives is they don't take the emotional risks. And then I think they also get hung up because they don't take the financial risks. And, um, and I want to be very thoughtful about that because I have that anxiety. But I was really curious how you could get creative about this. So one of my favorite entrepreneurs we interviewed, a serial entrepreneur, has done huge stuff you've heard of, hates financial risk, hates it. So how in the world do you be a serial entrepreneur when you hate financial risk? And it's very simple. He, he fortifies. He says, I always have like a little consulting gig on the side. I keep my burn rate low. So it pays the bills. I don't have to be staying up at night. Like, am I going to get kicked out? And that gives me the, the, the comfort when I take that risk that, that I'm not risking at all. So again, self-knowledge helps you make wise choices. It can support you through the uncertainty. When you wrote that in the book, I totally related to it. And I have a question related to that as well uh, later. But I totally relate to it because I feel exactly the same thing. I, I, my father went bankrupt uh, when I was a kid, and I'm always deathly afraid of ending up uh, broken in the street. Literally, I think about it all the time, even though it's irrational. So I always have side consulting gigs and money always coming in while I'm still doing these entrepreneurial things. And now I'm teaching and doing entrepreneurial stuff uh, here. So I related to that perfectly. Um, you suggest people create their own risk meter. Uh, please talk more about that. Yeah. So um, what I would say is, as part of this self-knowledge, you it's helpful to map out these risks. And by the way, you can do this for an organization too. The labels would be different. They would be things like customer, <clears throat> you know, customer interactions, product development, sales, finance. But for a personal, it would be you essentially want to rate yourself between uh, zero and ten. And if you picture a, a circle with a little bullseye going out, 10 being the outer ring, very comfortable with, say, social risk, and zero being I'm super uncomfortable with that, you would rate yourself along these core risks. Uh, it would be financial, emotional, social. Uh, emotional, what is that? That's like your very deep interpersonal relationships. Social, that's like think about going to a cocktail party or a networking event. You're courage kind of talking to people. It would be physical. Uh, you know, Mark has mentioned to me, he's jumped out of a plane before. He's, he's got some high risk tolerance to do that. Um, yeah, it would be uh, also uh, political would be your willingness to, to take, you know, kind of big actions like that. And then just rank yourself on these dimensions and then ask yourself, like, am I playing to my strengths? And sometimes we're not. I wasn't, you know, like the very first book I published, I didn't want to publish it because I was afraid people would think it was dumb. And I, and I, and I presented it into, in a meeting. Now this did take some courage with Clay Christensen, you know, the, uh, the yeah, framer of disruptive innovation yeah. in the meeting. So that took some courage for sure. But then, but it took my co-author saying, you know, I think this idea has a lot of merit to move forward. And so I've learned that about myself. I got to kind of self-correct for that. But the, 
But again, the big thing I would say is look for where you might be getting hung up or what's causing you a lot of stress now. If you're feeling a lot of uncertainty and say, okay, what could I do to fortify there? So I don't have to be as stressed. And, you know, uh, Mark and I chatted a little bit, Mark, somebody who's taken a lot of risks, but you revealed a part of why you're able to take all those risks. And you have a little bit of what um, a colleague of mine called, uh, if you're stressed about finances, you get a little bit of, we could call it go to hell money, which is allows you to take, say, well, wait a minute, I'm going to take this risk. I feel like it's the right thing. Or, or maybe if I'm being asked to do something I find kind of ethically questionable, I can just be like, you know, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and that actually turns out to be a quality of really great leaders. They're not so afraid to lose their job. And so they push their organizations to the places they should be rather than being safe until it kind of the game is up and they're falling too far behind. Right. And that's why Kodak and BlackBerry and all these other companies who were once uh, monster brands don't exist anymore is for exactly that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and let's circle back to this. In the book, you write uh, uh, in the book, you write and Adam Grant also mentioned this in one of his books that research suggests putting all the eggs in one basket, going all in decreases your chances of success. Uh, I, I agree with this. But why is this? So, um, you know, uh, Adam Grant, by the way, is a nice guy, but he's drawing on research that some other folks did. I want to make sure I give them credit that showed that um, hybrid entrepreneurs are more successful on average than entrepreneurs who risk it all, meaning they quit their jobs and they try to make it happen. And the reason why is very simple. You're stepping uh, just let's just it's very clear to me. You're stepping into the unknown when you start something new. There are, by definition, things you don't know. It's going to take you time to discover, resolve, pivot accordingly, find the right customers. And because it's uncertain, there's a good chance that it'll take you more time than you originally guessed. So if you're doing that hybrid entrepreneur thing where you're still kind of got that gig on the side like you have, Mark, or maybe it's your full-time work, but you're you're making progress, it gives you time and to 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 learn essentially where the key assumptions are, what the right answer is, how to address it. And then when you've got those uncertainties resolved, you'll know that moment it's time to jump all the way in. Now, I just want to issue one word of caution about this. And, and it's funny, um, I, I actually heard this, you know, this is a principle I know from the research and entrepreneurship, but I also heard it from the gentleman who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2016, uh, Ben Feringa. So if you've read those science fiction articles, robots running around in your blood, it'd be his research. And by the way, the robots are curing cancer and good stuff like that. They're not like controlling you or something. But he does this work on molecular machines. And I asked him about that journey to that breakthrough. And he just talked about how much uncertainty there was. And I asked him, how do you help your students get comfortable with that? And he said, well, I, I, I always think you need more than one leg to stand on. And, and so I, he, I coaches them to have a project that is certain. Uh, more certain, not certain, but more certainty uh, and a project that has high uncertainty because if you have only the high uncertainty project, because everything's riding on that, you'll push it too far. You, you, you won't stop when you should have stopped, when you should have seen the signs to stop. You won't pivot when you should have pivoted because you're so desperate for it to work. And so it also helps you pull out at the right moment too. And, and I guess, you know, with all that said, I, I think the one word of advice I have is, to 
think really hard because I think most of us though have the opposite problem. It's not that we have all our eggs in the high uncertainty basket. It's we have all our eggs in the perfectly certain basket, meaning we're not doing on the side any of those explorations of the things that we really care about. We're just making sure we're getting our retirement full and we're, you know, doing all those things. And, and that, you know, I, 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 that's a danger. That's a danger. I think um, you're always trying to reduce the amount of stress uh, that you're under to make good decisions. So hence, like, I never want to put my students or people I work with in high pressure situations, then you're making, you're going to make big mistakes. And so that's why I think when you have other in- sources of income, you're not, you're, you're think clearer uh, about it. So I think that's, it's always the smart move to go and do. And you've reached uh, lots of um, very successful entrepreneurs who have multiple jobs uh, doing it until they knew that the other thing was going to take off for sure. Um, I thought it was fascinating that Lindsay Tauber, former head of Novartis Digital uh, Acceleration Labs, writes that she eats uncertainty for breakfast, but doesn't like to change her routines. Well, what's your takeaway from this? Oh, I love that because, um, so, you know, I interview all these innovators and the thing I'll say is they say super provocative things uh, like uncertainty is fuel for me, or I love uncertainty or Lindsay yeah. was great. Cause she was like, I eat uncertainty for breakfast. It just took me back. I was like, oh my gosh, like not me, like not me. Like, but what I love to joke about Lindsay is she, she doesn't eat uncertainty for breakfast. She eats granola and she <laughs> eats the exact same, she's the exact same granola wherever she is in the world. And here's what we found by interviewing these innovators who said they love uncertainty. That's what they say to you and me on the front stage of their lives. But on the backstage of their lives, they recognize nobody has infinite capacity for the stress that uncertainty inevitably creates. So they create these little islands of certainty or what we called uncertainty balancers elsewhere in their life so that they could endure with greater uh, calm the uncertainty that mattered. And, and so we saw this, you know, Lindsay was you know, bringing her granola. She was sitting in the same seat of a plane. But Paul Smith, he's this designer known for these really colorful designs, stays in the same room of the same hotel. They, they, so they had routines and habits uh, that, that, that that was one category of things that helped give them calm. They, uh, they used humor and sarcasm. They did outsourcing and simplification. So, you know, uh, there were leaders who wore the same clothes all the time, so they never have to decide anything. But the most important was, uh, you know, relationships and communities. Uh, and that, that turned out to be really powerful. And, and that can be, you can think about personal relationships, you can think about professional communities. You could even think, you know, I was teaching this to a group of, of leaders recently. And a gentleman who was a leader in this organization shared a really interesting story to me. He said, every Monday at noon, I have a meeting with my team, which we kind of beginning, we shoot the breeze. How was your weekend? How's your life? And then we kind of outline the key priorities for that week. He said, one week, I said, we didn't have much to say. So I was going to cancel it. He said, I got three emails saying, please don't cancel it. I look forward to this to help me set up the rest of my week. And as I explained this principle to him, he really, he said, you know, what I realized is this was really an uncertainty balancer for people. This kind of moment to like, you know, uh, say, uh, what are we doing and, and how are we going to do it? And, 
you know, when I look at like uh, methodologies, like agile methodology, which is something I teach and it has this daily stand-up meeting where you say, what did you do yesterday? What will you do today? What stands in your way? To me, that's also an uncertainty balancer. So I, I see these hidden all over the place, but I think it's just important to call it out. Again, you probably understood this stuff intuitively, but how do we call it out so that we, we implement it in our own lives and we implement it in the lives of, of those we touch? Why are people afraid of uncertainty risk and how do they get beyond? I mean, you've given some of the hints here about what they could do, but what is probably the most one or two things that would allow them to get this breakthrough? Well, Mark, in the book, The Upside of Uncertainty, we talk about 42 tools that will help people, um, but we organize those 42 tools around this first aid cross for uncertainty. Uh, another way to say it is how do you build what we call your uncertainty ability, which is your ability to be calm in uncertainty and see the possibilities. And uh, uh, the forearms are reframing uh, in terms of the possibility, not just the uncertainty, um, preparing uh, that when we talked about uncertainty balancers, that's some of that, uh, preparing in advance. Uh, how do you take doing? How do you do take action? There's research shows there's better ways than others. And sustaining, which is when a setback happens, how do you recover? I'd say of all those, even though it's, it's more well-known and, and maybe softer, the, it would be the reframing in terms of the possibility, not just the uncertainty. And so what a great leader will do if there's a setback or there's an opportunity, there's going to be uncertainty. There's going to be possibility. There are two sides of the same coin. They, they focus people on that possibility side. And, and, and here's why it matters so much, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Framing is a very well-documented uh, effect, psychological effect documented in behavioral economics and other fields that says the way you describe something changes how you think, decide, and act. And I'm sure the listeners to your podcast have heard this before, but you know, Kahneman and Tversky did the Nobel Prize winning study where they gave people uh, disease and there's two treatments and treatment A is like 95% chance of success. Treatment B is 5% chance of failure. And, and I'm simplifying, but in essence, they're statistically the identical. But nonetheless, everybody chooses 95% chance of success. And it's because we have been wired by evolution to be gain-seeking. We want to win. And we are wired to be loss-averse, meaning we run away from losing. So this is so important for uncertainty. Because if uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin, if we're focused exclusively on the uncertainty, what happens is we trigger that loss aversion in people's brains and they're, and they're anxious and they're afraid and they're distracted versus if we can focus on that, it's okay to acknowledge the uncertainty, especially if it's a crisis, you have to do that. But what I see leaders do is they say, they think in the spirit of transparency, I, I need to talk about how bad this crisis is. And they're triggering that loss aversion in people versus if you can also or predominantly focus on the possibility there, you actually trigger that gain-seeking part of their evolutionary wiring that says, oh, this is, this is good, go towards it, explore it, do your best. You know, and, and, and I find that it, it sounds uh, soft, but I mean, I've worked with companies where 
they, you know, company loses their number one client that maybe accounts for 30% of their revenue. It's a huge loss. They have teams and teams of people dedicated to this. And, and the great leaders do things like frame in terms of how we're going to recover, how we're going to win the client back, how we're going to win new clients, how we have the best capabilities to do this. And all that is triggering action and, and positive uh, momentum, forward momentum. So it, it, yeah, that's probably the number one thing to do. Question from the audience. People who have anxiety, ADHD, and on the autism spectrum have very little focus on what they're doing. Any tools or suggestions for this community? Well, that's interesting because when we think about neurodiverse people, which is what we would, you know, maybe put that in, uh, also dyslexia, it's always interesting to ask what um, advantages this also gives to you. So one of the categories of folks we ended up interviewing a fair amount of was folks who have struggled uh, with dyslexia. And um, what they feel like, uh, at least in the interviews we had and the things we read, is the world is a very uncertain place for them because they have a hard time understanding the rules that everybody else is playing by. And so one of the advantages they end up having is that they um, end up kind of inventing their own rules. So uh, David Hornick is uh, one of our interviewees. He's like a top venture capitalist. He talked about going to Harvard Law School and he told this great story because like, what do you do in law school? You read all this stuff and you have to regurgitate it. And he's like, he said to me, going to law school and you have Harvard Law School when you have dyslexia was a profoundly stupid thing to do. And so I had to, I had to learn to play the game by my own rules. And he talked about how he would listen to what his professors cared about. And this one professor talked about this one particular legal philosopher and seemed to admire him quite a bit. And while his roommate was studying, reading all the cases again, um, my interviewee, David Hornick, was writing an essay about the role of you know John Rawls' philosophy of law and how that affected things. And he showed it to his roommate. His roommate said, you are so stupid. Why would you waste your time doing that? But then when the professor handed out the exam, it was tell me more about John Rawls' philosophy and blah, blah, blah. And he was done, you know, but, but he said, I had to invent my own, my own rules. I had to reinvent the game. And now research is showing that this particular neurodiversity of dyslexia is actually better adapted for uncertainty. Now, I am not an expert on that particular literature, but I know that there are adaptations uh, that are better for certain things. So, for example, we see a high correlation between folks who say have an AM, something uh, struggle with, say, Asperger's, uh, and really being able to make breakthroughs in the specific, specific domain of their focus. So, um, my question would be to say, again, Uncertainty and possibility, two sides of the same coin. Clearly, in a domain with a certain set of rules, it's incredibly difficult to navigate. But then let's frame in terms of what is the advantage that thing gives. And uh, Mark, you may know this yourself, but I often find an incredible number of very successful entrepreneurs also say to me, I have ADHD like crazy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. We have a question from the audience. Uh, can you ask about cultures that are more and less comfortable with uncertainty? Israelis are much more comfortable with uncertainty, even in current crisis. American interviewers ask what will happen at the end and get really uh, uncomfortable with the answer. We have to see, stay well. 
Okay. Yeah. So um, actually, that's one of the pieces of evidence that people can learn this because you get whole cultures that are, are done this, so that, that have a greater or lesser tolerance for uncertainty. In fact, uh, Gert Hofstetter was a very famous researcher on the differences between cultures. And he had five dimensions. He felt like uh, differentiated cultures. And one of the dimensions was uncertainty avoidance. And so there are some cultures where they there's kind of this collective wisdom and expectation about the nature of uncertainty, and they're more comfortable with than others. And I think what my work does, uh, I should say our work does uh, in the upside of uncertainty is just give people words and tools to put a framework around what they may already know if you grow up in one of those cultures or like Mark, you've got that experience of, of trying and having it work out. Um, and then for those of us who are less comfortable like me or grow up in cultures that are not comfortable with uncertainty, how do we start to get more comfortable? You know, Mark, one of the questions I got asked a couple of times was, Nathan, but aren't these innovators you study just different? Aren't they just born capable yeah. of uncertainty? And, and I, and I want to be really clear and fair. Uh, my colleague who's an applied neuroscientist summarizes the answer to this question saying everything in life is a function of three things, according to the latest research in neuroscience. It's a function of genes. Your genes matter. That's true. They give you a proclivity for more or less of certain things. Two, your experience you know, so if you grew up, say, in this culture with a high uncertainty tolerance, or maybe you grew up, I mean, people grow up on farms a lot of times, have a high uncertainty tolerance, and you know, or, or, or other things happen to you in your life. And number three, learning. So that's like just the facts. But, but the research is very clear that a big part of this is learning. And so that's what I'm, I'm hoping to help pe give people tools to, 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 to make the most of that dimension, that stretchability of the rubber band we each come to the world with. And, and this is what I wanted to get to, Mark, is that people ask me, are those entrepreneurs different? And you know, I think at the, by the end of their lives, it seems like they're really different. But, but I think, this is my personal view, that they've really learned this fundamental secret to life. And that is when you take smart risks, it's true. Some of them don't work. But for the most part, if you're taking smart risks, not just dumb risks where you're just shooting off, uh, but smart risks, they work out and they make your life more interesting, more engaging, more rich. And, 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 I, and I feel sad. I mean, we're, you're coming from all over the world, but, but I grew up in the US and I feel like I was taught this dogma of certainty, which was, you know, make your life really certain, you know, plan your life, get the career, buy a house, get married, have kids and, and, and be super stable. And, and the problem is that kind of makes for, I mean, some people really love that, but I find that makes life kind of boring. And, and I don't think I'm alone because I also interviewed uh, gamblers and heads of gambling organizations. And I remember interviewing the head of this national gambling organization. And he said, oh, we call our product reverse insurance. I, I said, wanted you to talk about that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He said, our product is basically our ideal customer is somebody whose life is so stable and certain and predictable 
that they will pay us money for the chance of something new happening, even if it's just the emotion of the chance of something new happening. And I I think that kind of helps illustrate this idea that, that as much as we fear uncertainty, we also need it. And, and for me, I, I, I don't know, I, I love, you know, for, you know, lots of bringing in lots of ideas. And uh, I've read a fair amount of, you know, in quantum physics, and, and there's this Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is this idea that the more precisely, you know, the velocity of a quantum particle, the less precisely, you know, its position. And, and what I take away from that at this moment in time is that there is some fundamental uncertainty in the universe. And isn't that a great thing? Because without it, with big enough computing power and AI systems, we could maybe deterministically predict the future. But once you bring in this latent uncertainty and the differences among us as human beings and all the unpredictable of predictability of a human being, suddenly you get an environment where new things could happen. And sometimes those new things are hard new things, uh, sad new things. You, you mentioned the bankruptcy, and I was just thinking how. I was at, you know, those things are hard. I mean, I want to acknowledge those are really downsides. But even in that downside, there can be a possibility. And, and I was just reading up on the history of Lego and the founder of Lego, this, you know, iconic company. And the, the reason that company came about is because the founder went bankrupt. It was during the Great Depression. Times were so hard. He was a carpenter. He'd make barns. Nobody would pay him anymore. The only thing he could sell were toys because parents, it's really touch, quite touching. They always spend money on toys for their children. They always want to shelter their children. And, and that led him then on a path to be you know, towards this, you know, a legendary company has given so many kids a lot of fun and enjoyment, but, that, but it came out of the bankruptcy. He would have never gotten there if he had not had that really unfortunate thing happen question from the audience. Uh, would he be allowed to give an example of a company that uh, we would all know, GE, for example, or Hewlett Packard, or as you said, BlackBerry, um, ones who didn't take these chances and miss these opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, I, I see this so much. And so I got to be careful which, which one um, can I kind of throw under the bus, so to speak? Um, well, you know, you mentioned Kodak, and actually it's a really fascinating example because they invented the digital camera two times. <clears throat> so they invented it back in the 1970s. It was kind of funky looking. It had like a cassette recorder in it. It was very weird. And then they reinvented it again. But the problem was that their business model was so attractive they essentially sold, you know, as you know, canisters of film at this very large 60, 70% gross margin. And to them, digital looked very unattractive. It was a lower margin. And, um, and so they missed it. Uh, actually, Mark, I, I now here's one that comes to mind. Actually, this is a good one because it's a study. Uh, in, uh, in North America, there were two primary booksellers, uh, Borders, and Barnes yeah. and they break and mortar retailers. And, and I saw a study that tried to unpack <clears throat> all the forces that contributed to the failure of Borders and Barnes and Noble surviving when Amazon and the internet came out. So Amazon is this huge challenge to them. 
because it has a structural cost advantage. They don't have stores. They don't have employees in stores. You know, it's just cheaper. So uh, what in looking at all the investments they made, the types of investments, all the factors, this comparative case study concluded that they felt, they observed that the most impactful difference was that borders framed, remember we talked about reframing in terms of uncertainty and possibility, the internet and Amazon in terms of the uncertainty. And as a result, that led to different kinds of investments, lower investments, different caliber of people who jumped on board because it was so frightening, and ultimately to this downward spiral. Whereas Barnes & Noble framed it in terms of the possibility. They framed it in terms of how we could use the internet to serve our customers in new ways, to engage with them in conversation. What happens as a result, different kind of investments get made, bigger investments get made. The top people in the organization say, well, I wanna be on that possibility frontier. And so you get better teams who are better able to execute on that. And so that's why they've managed to even survive in our in that environment and, and to tap into. There's now a resurgence of booksellers because turns out, you know, as, as good as a as Amazon is or a digital book is, it's still really nice to go somewhere and read and browse and all those things. So so anyway, that would be another example. And that one was a nice one because comparative case study. Another question from the audience. Are there useful questionnaires that are helpful in measuring how individuals deal with uncertainty and predict decision makers uh, will behave. And you even mentioned the book, uh, the guy who founded OKCupid said that he looks at how well they handle ambiguity. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so um, I will say um, we're working on a um, assessment that helps you see what kinds of assessments you face and where they fall. So I'll put my uh, email there in the chat. If, if that interests you, reach out. And when we finish that up, I'll send it to you. In terms of more general predictors, yeah. So uh, Sam Yegan, the founder of uh, uh, OkCupid, but he was a CEO of Match.com when they self-disrupted with Tinder, um, talks about that. Uh, another Other characteristics I've seen is um, to ask people about something until they finally tell you they don't know. And then to one, can they acknowledge they don't know? But two, in that moment of not knowing, how do they think about it? And so uh, they can, for example, say, oh, I don't really know, but in an analogous situation, we saw X, Y, and Z. So that might also apply here. So they're able to do this kind of analogical reasoning. Um, another way to, to do it, if you're looking at hiring, and, and this is, by the way, one of my interests is, you know, we've written this book, The Upside of Uncertainty, but we really want to learn how do we train, how do we hire this uncertainty ability. I think it's this missing capability that's critical now in, in organizational life. But so how do we how do we hire for that? And and you know, people, some of the interviewees I talked to would ask questions about, well, tell me about a time that you faced a lot of uncertainty. What did you do and how did you handle that? And, like you did, Mark, and I told you about moving to France, which was leaving country and comfort and all those things, and, and to see how they think about it, how they wrestle with it, and uh, because and and by the way, again, this I said it's a missing capability because organizations have lived in this fairly stable environment that has become more uncertain. So they're not they're they're, they're just realizing, gosh, we're feeling all this angst. How do we deal with it? But not all organizations. So like LVMH, which is um, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, the big luxury group, a lot of their 
lifeblood is being able to create new things that requires stepping to uncertainty. They're actually higher. That's one of the characteristics they hire for. So, so I, I would predict we see us a lot more. So I think that's a great question to ask. Um, many people when going through a bad patch or haven't reached their goals often say they feel like losers and lose their self-confidence. How does one dig themselves out of this often enormous hole? Um, the first thing I would say is to realize that it's not true and that you're not alone. So um, one thing we discovered in the research is that most people who go into uncertainty doubt themselves. So research shows that 70% of people feel this imposter syndrome, like they're just kind of faking it. So by the way, you feel that way, it doesn't mean you're not qualified, everybody else is feeling it. And I was really struck by some of the, some of the greats and, and how they also felt this. So like, I, I really touched John Steinbeck, kept a journal while he was writing Grapes of Wrath, which many people see as one of the greatest uh, works of literature in the American uh, tradition. Um, and he, the journal is just page after page, day after day of self-doubt, like saying things like, I'm not a writer. I'm just faking this. I'm not up to the task. I can't do this, you know? And, <clears throat> but what differentiated him is he didn't, he didn't let that stop him. He, he kept trying and kept trying and, and saw this. So the second thing I would say is this having setbacks is an inevitable part of the process of going into the unknown. Remember my definition of uncertainty? You don't know the variables. You don't know the probability distribution. You may not even know how to think about it. So, so to recognize that as part of the process and that it's a stepping stone to some place you can't see yet. You know, when I interviewed uh, Randy Komisar, who's also another legendary investor in Silicon Valley, he said, the thing that separates Silicon Valley from the rest of the world is our attitude towards failure. We don't see it as failure. We see it as learning. And he said, I've been talked about being in some of the biggest, most public, most embarrassing meltdowns in the Valley. And he said, you know, what was funny about that, though, is that the pioneers of the next generation of the Internet and of, of the Silicon Valley came out of those failures. So I say the second thing is to 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 remind yourself it's this step on this deve developmental journey. And you probably got one of the best lessons there is. And the third thing I would say to you to do <clears throat> is there's a little technique uh, actually from, uh, from a professor at University of Pennsylvania, not in Wharton, but, uh, but uh, Penn. Um, <clears throat> it's actually a whole field about how you navigate setbacks. And what he argued that is really, really effective uh, and, and many, many studies that this works is when a setback happens, what you want to do is you want to argue with the setback. You wanna, you wanna argue that it's temporary, that it's isolated, I meaning it doesn't affect everything in your life, and that it's impersonal, it's not your fault. Where people get stuck is they do the opposite of that. They say, this is permanent. This will be always a black record on my, about black mark on my record. This is, it affects everything. I'm just not very good at stuff, you know, so they make it, global. And, and they say it's, it's personal. It's my fault. And that's extremely demotivating. It makes the obstacle a catastrophe. And what this researcher found out study after study is that it's just 
a matter of disputing the belief. The exact same thing can happen. And they make it temporary, isolated, and impersonal. And, and I'll be specific. I was with the new CEO of a big retail group, and she was really discouraged because they'd had a really bad year. And I saw her just like a rain cloud. And all I did was I still was standing on the lawn outside of INSEAD and I argued with it. I, I said, hey, economic cycles come and go. It's down now, but it's going to come up. I just made it temporary. And by the way, the results this year are great. <laughs> I was right. Uh, number two, I said, hey, does it affect every part of your business the same? Are there some bright spots? Yeah, there's some bright spots. Oh, and by the way, remember your business is not you. You're still a good human being. And then number three, how do I make it not your fault? I said, listen, you didn't make this recession. You just got put in as CEO. You couldn't plan for it. Like it's not your fault. And I'm, I'm telling you, I literally saw her face brighten up. Saw it brighten up because it released that, uh, you know, that forward uh, momentum. Um, you, please talk about the concept of uh, trans silence and how one should use it to improve their lives. Yeah, so transilience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, transilience. So um, one of the things we bumped up against was how is this different than resilience? And uh, yeah, resilience is a great quality. I'm not knocking it. But, it's, but to me, resilience often gets interpreted as... I can take a punch and I stay standing. I keep going, you know. And transilience is this really curious word from the field of technology strategy. And it describes this phase shift that occurs. So imagine the moment that a block of iron becomes molten and flows, or when water that's in a pot boils and becomes steam. It's this, this change that happens. And so we like that image of transilience as being beyond resilience. And it's when you encounter uncertainty and you're able to do this phase shift moment where you are able to to see the possibility and 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 i really believe this uncertainty ability is a muscle you build over time but it's also got this curious kind of phase shift moment this transilience and so i like to ask now the key question i ask myself is i'm encountering this uncertainty how do I, you know, the transilient moment is to ask, how do I see the possibility that's here? And, um, <clears throat> and, and I've had to do this with uh, hard things, really, really hard things with family and with life and with, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, my work. And uh, how do I do that? It's, and that's a really empowering question and can create this phase shift moments. That's what we, we hope for everybody is they walk away saying, wow, not only how can this uncertainty make me stronger, which is kind of Nassim Taleb's message in Anti-Fragile. Uh, I love the idea. I totally agree with it. But what was missing was a little bit the how. Uh, uh, but how, like, how do I see that? How do we move to seeing the possibility there? And, and that's most important when things happen we don't, we don't care for. And um, and, and, and that's, you know, we get dealt a hand of cards and, and I want to acknowledge that nobody wanted that hand of cards, but now that you've got it, what can you do? And uh, so I think that's really true. How do you get young people to embrace failure in order to maximize their potential and do great things? Because when you mentioned uh, Sam Yegan, founder 
of Match.com reminded his people of this all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, um, so number one, I would say reframe the failure as learning. Um, so we, we talk about what do we learn? Number two, acknowledge the reality that there are really stupid failures. We, we don't want to do those. You know, if we could foresee it or if we could you know, be smart in how we take action, we want to we want to do that. So that helps alleviate people's fears. But but the third is really seeing how it's tied to possibility. So Sam Yagen had this really great moment. So he come out of like you know, multiple successful startups. He gets brought in to be CEO of Match.com. And he's trying to get them to take some of these risks. They're going to lay the foundation of their future growth. But people are really reluctant. And, and, and he realized, gosh, I'm with these people who have been trained to succeed at everything they do and to kind of pick like the safe path. And so he said he showed them the moment that SpaceX uh, launched one of their first reusable rockets and it exploded. And he asked the executive team, what just happened? And somebody said, they just failed. And he said, I knew in that moment I had them because then I said, isn't it all conceivable that you could make this huge leap, which is reusable rockets, the like holy grail of rocketry, that you could make that massive leap without trying and failing. And they're like, Oh, yeah, you, you couldn't. Yeah, that's going to be part of the journey. And that's right. So that's what we have to be able to endure or embrace even if we're going to get to that breakthrough. And, and by the way, what has he just done? He's just framed it in terms of the possibility. So now everybody's like, yeah, we got to take some, we, we need to take some risks. We need to do that because we see now that's the pathway. So with younger people, it's hard because they have all this anxiety about, am I going to get into school? Am I going to get into, you know, a good job? Am I going to do whatever? And, and we just got to frame the possibility and also the reality that life is a really funny, circuitous journey. And sometimes the path we think is not, is the, you know, the path we think is the way to our goal is not it. And, you know, in that section on reverse insurance, we wrote about Jennifer Tejeda, who yeah. was the first. CEO of like an enterprise SaaS company, first female CEO. And she said, she, she unpacked this myth. She said, when I was young, I thought it was get the right major, get the right first job, get the right second job, and, and then I'll be CEO. And she said, the reality couldn't be further from that. She said, success came from being open to the kind of odd sounding adventure, the, the odd project, the strange thing, the, the setback. That's was the path to success. And, and, I, and I think, you know, I'm sure, Mark, you've lived this experience yourself. Yeah, this has got to be true. And I'm, I bet it's true for all, you know, everybody who's listening. Here's my last question for you. Um, how is AI impacting uncertainty in terms of people's professional choices or just the uncertainty that people have about the positive versus the negative that AI will bring? Yeah. So uh, listen, there are, um, AI is a really challenging topic because there are things that are within our control and there are things that are outside our control. So the things outside our control for most of us are, you know, what are the policy choices that will ensure that AI contributes to everybody's prosperity rather than a few? And these are choices and these are policy choices 
And, you know, I really push everyone to be engaged in, you know, in their whatever processes they have to influence leadership and policy to, to push their leaders to make those good choices. It, research shows it's a choice if technology creates prosperity. But let's talk about what we can control, which is us and how we engage with it. And it's funny because I use generative AI as an example of uncertainty and how it's one of those cases where rather than trying to control it and manage it because it's scary, instead, how do we embrace it? And I would really encourage folks to say, play around with it, experiment, discover how it's complementary because most technologies, almost all technologies end up being complements, not substitutes. And so... The future belongs to those who play, learn, and discover how it's a compliment and aren't afraid of it being, you know, some horrible thing. Nathan, I can't believe the hour went by so quickly. Uh, and then we, we didn't even cover all the questions I put together from reading your fabulous book. And it's a book that you're going to end up reading twice to pick up all the good information. But I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us all the way from France. And uh, we look forward to the next book that you write as well. Maybe we need to go back to one of the prior books you wrote and bring you on for that. That would be really fun. I would love that. So thank you, everyone, for your time. And thank you for your engagement and your questions. And, and, and go out there and make the life you dream about. Nathan, thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.